New Creation Realities. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 5. Father, we thank you once again for the Word of God. You said again that the entrance of your Word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. Now, Father, we do indeed ask you to grant us your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. We ask you to please open up the eyes of our understanding and help us to see what is the hope of our calling and what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance that is already in us by virtue of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, fathers, we pursue this now to know more about our righteousness. I pray in Jesus' name, Father, that you help us to hear and receive the word of God as it is in truth, not the word of any man, but the word of God. So we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I put up here on the top of the outline, understanding the sacrificial system. I think I'm going to just start by saying this as we go to this. Again, remember that Hebrews is the one book in Scripture that speaks more to the sacrificial system than any other book in the Bible as far as in the New Covenant. And that is, of course, because it is the book written to Jewish believers. It's written to Hebrew Christians. And people argue over who the author of Hebrews is, but I'm still one of these guys that says, I cannot understand how it can be anybody other than Paul. But nevertheless, because Paul, he said he was a Pharisee, the Pharisees and so on, all this, and he knew this to the nth degree. But as I often say in Hebrews, in the last few verses of Hebrews 5, in fact, I, I read this all the time, but let me just back up a minute. I just want you to give me the benefit of the doubt of something because I want you to read what it says here. In Hebrews 5, the last few verses... Hebrews 5.12 says, well, okay, I'm, I have to back up. Verse 11, Hebrews 5.11 says, concerning this, we have much to say, which is hard to explain. And he's referring to the priesthood of Melchizedek and stuff. He said, concerning this, we have much to say, which is hard to explain. So if the apostle of God said, some of this stuff is hard to explain, are you listening to me? If he said it, it's hard to explain but it doesn't mean that it cannot be understood. It, like in all things, it's a matter of what, how diligent we will be as we seek him. And then verse 12 said, for even though by this time you ought to be teaching others, you actually need someone to teach you over again the very first principles of God's word. You have come to need milk, not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who continues to feed on milk is obviously inexperienced and unskilled in the doctrine of what? Righteous. Righteousness. In the doctrine of righteousness, of conformity to the divine will and purpose, thought, and action. For he is a mere infant, not able to talk yet. Now, I could pontificate on that for a long time. If you're not skilled in the word of righteousness, if you don't have the revelation of righteousness, the writer of this book says, you're really not even qualified to speak about the gospel because you will pervert the truth. Verse 14, but solid food is for full grown men, for those whose senses 
and mental faculties are trained, trained, trained by practice to discriminate and distinguish between what is morally good and noble, what is evil and contrary either to divine or human law. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6, remember there were no chapter divisions in the original text. He said, therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrines of Christ the Messiah and advance steadily towards the completeness and the perfection that belongs to spiritual maturity. He said, let us not again be laying the foundation. And now he's going to list six things. I'm not teaching on this, but these are the six basic foundation stones of the faith. They are in an apostolic order. And most, unfortunately, even church leaders, if you ask them what the six foundation stones of our faith are, uh, don't do it because I don't want them to be embarrassed. But, but I mean, often they don't, don't realize these are the six basic foundation stones of the whole Christian faith. And he goes on, he listened, he said, let us not again be laying the foundation of repentance and abandonment of dead works or dead formalism and of the faith by which you turn to God with teachings about purifying, the laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment and punishment. These are all matters of which you should have been fully aware long, long ago. But I want you to listen to verse 3, especially of an Amplified Bible. Verse 3 says, If indeed God permits, we will now proceed to advanced teaching. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is, the writer of this book says, everything from this point forward Quite frankly, we need to have a foundation of a lot of things first to rightly divide the word of truth. So please forgive me that I'm not teaching all the foundations first, but I want you to trust that what the scripture says, the scripture says, and it means it. And one of the first things you have to understand is like why it says in Hebrews 11, remember Hebrews 11:6, 6, that classic verse that we quote so often where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, the, so faith is a huge thing. But now let's turn back to Hebrews 8. Now those of you who had the first course on grace when we taught on which side of Calvary will know that this is where we read as well about the difference between the old and the new covenants. But sin consciousness is what we're going to talk about today. But we have to look at Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 to capture Again, a little more of the picture of what God has actually done in Christ, what righteousness is really intended to produce. But let's look first of all, as, as the writer begins to really speak about, remember the difference, the major difference, remember the one of all the differences between the law, of all the differences that there could have been brought up about the difference between the law, uh, the old covenant and the new covenant. Remember, because no scripture is without signification. It's an amazing thing to really understand that the Holy Spirit who authored the scripture we're going to read the one thing, remember, that he speaks to that the Spirit of God felt right to really show us the major difference between old and new. So we're going to start at verse 6. Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it, is, but as it now is, he, Christ, has acquired a priestly ministry which is as much superior and more excellent than the old as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior and more excellent because it is enacted, this new covenant is enacted and it rests upon more important, sublimer, higher and nobler promises. Verse seven, for if that first covenant 
had been without defect, there would have been no room for another one or an attempt to institute another one. Verse eight, however, he finds fault with them showing its inadequacy when he says, behold, the days will come, says the Lord, when I will make and ratify a new covenant. In other words, God prophesied about the new agreement that he was going to make. He said, when I will make and ratify a new covenant or agreement with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. And again, verse nine is the part that just, just is a dividing line of all Bible truth. He said, this is the major difference between the old and the new. And the first line of verse nine says, the new one will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I grasped them by the hand to help and relieve them and to lead them out from the land of Egypt. For they did not, they under the old covenant did not abide in my agreement. Well, what's his agreement? The word. He did, they didn't abide in the word of God. They didn't abide in the covenant. For they did not abide in my covenant with them. And so what did he do? He said, I withdrew my favor and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And to me, like I said, this is just one of the most incredible hallmarks of scripture that I still believe over 95% of the body of Christ does not believe. Most people today, remember, believe that the moment you disobey God or you step out of obedience, you step off the word, when you don't abide in the word, you have been taught for years that immediately God distances himself from you and disregards you. It removes his favor from you. And I will go to my grave trumpeting it as loud as I can that in this new covenant, God does not remove his favor. Neither does he distance himself. Neither does he disregard you. Hallelujah. Now I know how mad that makes religious demons immediately, but that's tough. I didn't write the Bible. God did. Okay. Now remember, of course, in line with that, you have to interpret it in context with other scripture, but I can't reteach the whole first two courses. Remember Romans 2, 4 says, it is the goodness of God that is intended to draw men's hearts and minds to repentance, to change and to accept God's will. Again, like I've said from the beginning, if preachers, if, any, if we ever do our job right and ever actually paint and portray Jesus Christ for who he is, it's God's will, God's intention that when you see the depth, the length, the height, and the breadth of his goodness and his love for you, that it will shock you into not wanting to move in any other direction. Because the power of that attraction becomes so strong that it breaks the power of sin's attraction. Hallelujah. You never get free from sin by preaching sin. All you become is more sin conscious. Remember that whole, I can't go back and reteach it, like I said, but the gospel, it is the gospel, the good news. Remember there were four phrases that go with that. Everybody always just says good news, but there's four phrases that go in the Greek that never they say are to be spoken. The word gospel is never said without those four phrases being implied. News that makes the heart happy, information that brings one joy, words that make the mouth sweet, these statements. But he said, Paul said categorically, remember it is the gospel that is the power. That is the power. That is the power of God unto salvation. And remember, salvation is the all-inclusive word of Scripture. So it means salvation, healing, 
deliverance, preservation, soundness of mind. But it's the good news that's intended to bring that to people, not the bad news. <laughs> and again, you don't have to tell anybody there's a sinner. You're a sinner. You already know you're a sinner. But like, just, just be patient, though, while we walk through this stuff. Because otherwise you'll start throwing rocks at me. Because we're not saying, remember Galatians, or Romans 6. Remember, I always say, give me the benefit of the doubt. I know what Romans 6, 1 says. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Okay, so don't freak out yet. Don't freak out at all, please. <laughs> so verse 10, he said, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will imprint my laws upon their minds, even upon the innermost thoughts and understanding. I will engrave them upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it will never more be necessary for each one to teach his neighbor and his fellow citizen or each one his brother saying, no, the Lord, for all will know me from the smallest to the greatest of them because he's going to come and live inside of us, tabernacle within us by his spirit. Verse 13 says, I'm, just, I'm jumping around because like I said, I've got to make hay here. Verse 13 says, when God speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Now, is that verse in the Bible? Yeah. Is it? So uh, this is why I keep saying you've got to be very careful if you only live from, a new, uh, from an Old Testament perspective because, I mean, it happens so subtly. You begin to see everything through an Old Covenant mentality. And you begin to tell and communicate and believe that how God dealt with people in the Old Covenant is how He deals with them today. And if you do that, you're going to always live in error. He said here, and you have to just ask, ask yourself questions. Is there a new covenant? Well, if there is, it says in the old one's obsolete. Now don't, now see, you say, but that raises a lot of questions. It sure does. That's why you have to study this for a long time, not one hour. <laughs> you hear me? There's a whole lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of information you go through. It's, it, but just understand, here's a clue. A clue is Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. But now listen. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse so that the blessing of Abraham, you know, might be upon all the Gentiles. For therein is written, you know, it talks about how it's revealed. For therein is the righteousness of God. I'm quoting Romans 1 again, I'm sorry. But it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse so that the blessing. In other words, all the blessing part of the covenant remains but he's paid the price for the curse. So yeah, we learn a lot from it, but again, just stay with us because the main topic right now is sin consciousness. But now let's, let's look at the ordinances, a lot of these, and we're gonna like look in Hebrews nine right now. And what we're gonna do right now is show again how the writer speaks of what the old system produced, the sacrificial system produced. So we're gonna read verses in chapter nine and chapter 10, then we're gonna come back and read other verses in the same. So we're gonna skip the good verses so that we can just make sure you see what happened under the old. Now verse nine, chapter one, now chapter nine, verse one, I mean. Now even the first covenant, now like I said, this is advanced teaching. So I'm trying to read it slow and I'm trying to just, like I said, I always keep saying light effusing you, provoke you so that you'll study further yourself. He said, now even the first covenant had its own rules and regulations for divine worship. And it had a sanctuary, but one of this world. For a tabernacle, a tent was erected 
in the outer division or compartment of which were the lampstand and the table with its loaves of the showbread set forth. This portion is called the holy place. But inside, beyond the second curtain or veil, there stood another tabernacle or division known as the Holy of Holies. It had the golden altar of incense and the ark, the chest of the covenant, covered over with wrought gold. This ark contained a golden jar which held the manna and the rod of Aaron that sprouted and the two stone slabs of the covenant bearing the Ten Commandments. Verse 5, above the ark and overshadowing the mercy seat were the representations of the cherubim, winged creatures which were the symbols of glory. We cannot now go into detail about these things. These arrangements having thus been made, the priests, now he's about to again speak about the old way of how things were done. These arrangements having thus been made, the priests enter habitually into the outer division of the tabernacle in performance of their ritual acts of worship. Okay? But into the second division of the tabernacle, none, none, in the words of the Holy of Holies is, none but the high priest goes and he only once a year, and never without taking a sacrifice of blood with, with him, which he offers for himself and for the heirs and the sins of ignorance and the thoughtlessness which the people have committed. Now, verse 8 to me is an incredible verse, again, as far as typology. By this, the Holy Spirit points out that the way into the true Holy of Holies is not yet thrown open, listen to this phrase, as long as the former, the outer portion of the tabernacle remains a recognized institution and is still standing. That's heavy because it speaks to the law. It speaks of if you're trying to live under the old way of things, you will never really experience the true holy of holies. So I'm telling you, this is important. <laughs> that is, if you want the fullness of the presence of the Lord in your life and what have you. As long as some of these old ways of looking at things, as long as some of this old law still, has, still reigns in our life as a recognized institution, you've blocked the way because of the sin consciousness that it's going to produce that we're going to speak about just here in a minute into the true stuff that God has for you. Now, verse 10 excuse me, verse 9 says, well, let me read verse 8 and 9 again because there's a comma there. By this, the Holy Spirit points out that the way into the, now I'm going to stop again. Listen, I know this is a lot of words, but we have to go slowly with this. So just everybody say to yourself, in the name of Jesus, I have ears to hear. Okay. <laughs> just listen. By this, the Holy Spirit points out that the way into the true holy of holies is not yet thrown open as long as the former, the outer portion of the tabernacle, remains a recognized institution and is still standing. I mean, you can look at that so many ways. You're the temple of God. As long as your flesh is recognized as the major institution of your life, if you're led by the flesh, you'll never enjoy the things of the Spirit. See what I mean? Seeing, verse 9, seeing that that first outer portion of the tabernacle was a parable a visible symbol or a picture of the present age. In it, in it, gifts and sacrifices are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience 
or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Now, did you hear that? Now, why you pause at that is because what you need to begin to see is what God really wants to take place. In other words, what God strives for, what God's intent is, is that at some point something happens that gets to the place where it perfects our conscience. The word perfect in the Bible always means mature, where a conscience is cleansed and our inner man is renewed. That's what he was really after. Verse 10, for the ceremonies, all these ceremonies that they did deal only with clean and unclean meats and drinks and different washings. These were mere external rules and regulations for the body that were imposed to tide the worshipers over until the time of setting things straight, of reformation, of the complete new order when Christ the Messiah shall establish the reality, when Christ the Messiah shall establish the reality of what these things foreshadowed, a better covenant. Now this is not talking about when he gets to heaven because when he, the last words on the cross were it is finished, I mean, he fulfilled the old covenant and the new covenant came into in action at that moment in time. Now just jump to verse 20. I'll read verse 19. He said, for when every, and again, under the old, this is how the old system worked. For when every command of the law had been read out by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of slain calves and goats together with water and scarlet wool and a bunch of hyssop and he sprinkled both the book, the role of the law and the covenant itself and all the people. Can you imagine if a church was still like that and you come in here and I get to fling blood all over you? That would be interesting. Can you? And Moses, he said, he'd do this and then he would say these words. He would say these words. Moses was a type of Christ. He would say these words. This blood, this is the blood that seals and ratifies the agreement the testament, the covenant, which God commanded me to deliver to you. Verse 21 and 22, and in the same way, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and all the sacred vessels and appliances used in divine worship. In fact, under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood and without the shedding of blood, there is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the sin and the merited punishment for the sins. You have to understand it's one thing to be forgiven of the sin. It's another thing to have the punishment that was due to the sin taken away. And then verse 25, it said this, nor did he enter into the heavenly sanctuary to offer himself regularly again and again as the high priest enters the Holy of Holies every year with blood, not his own. Now, so just in the outline, you see there's the ordinances, the veil, the Holy of Holies, the blood needed to be strengthened, and there was the need of constant offerings. Say constant. constant. There was a need of constant offerings. Now Hebrews 10, and then we're going to bounce back and forth. Hebrews 10, the first four verses. For since the law has merely a rude outline, a foreshadowing of the good things to come, instead of fully expressing those things, it can never, the law, and anybody who still tries to live under it, it can never, by offering the same sacrifices continually, year after year, make perfect 
those who approach its altars. And you have to, I, I repeat, you have to keep asking yourself, what was God's will? You know, it didn't do this, but what did he want us to do? Verse two, for if it were otherwise, listen, for if it were otherwise, would these sacrifices not have stopped being offered? Now listen, since the worshipers would have once and for all been cleansed, they would no longer have any guilt or consciousness of sin. But just listen to what it was supposed to produce. He said, for if it were otherwise, would these sacrifices not have stopped being offered since, since, in other words, if that one sacrifice, if those sacrifices would have really produced this cleanness, this cleanness of heart and what have you, he said, there would no longer, the people that come would no longer have any guilt or have any consciousness of sin. But look at verse three and four. But as it is, these sacrifices annually, these things that are done over and over again, bring a fresh remembrance of sins to be atoned for because the blood of bulls and goats is powerless to take sins away. Hallelujah. So again, it's a constant reminder. Now on the outline, just let me read those four verses quickly from the NIV. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the sacrifices, remember, only covered over sin. Remember when I talked about atonement, the major difference between atonement is atonement is if there's a stain on the table, the stain of sin. Atonement means to cover up. So you cover up the stain, but is the stain still there? The stain is still there, but it's covered. In the New Testament, the word atonement is only used one time, and it's only referring to the difference between it and remission. In the New Covenant, he has not atoned for our sins. He's not covered. In other words, the sin principle was still in the people's lives under the sacrificial system. But Jesus Christ did something phenomenal. He didn't take away just, he didn't cover up the stain. He took the stain away totally out of the way. And he then even took upon himself the very nature that caused the stain in the first place. That's what we spoke about either last week or the first week. So now let's just go back to Hebrews 9 again and look at what Jesus does as far as how he rids us of this sin consciousness, what his desires. So 9, let me say, let me start here again, verse 10 again, start there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, for the ceremonies deal only with clean and unclean meats and drinks and different washings. Mere external rules and regulations for the body impose the tide the worshipers over until the time of setting things straight of reformation of the complete new order when Christ the Messiah shall establish the reality of what these things foreshadowed a better covenant. But that appointed time came, hallelujah, when Christ the Messiah appeared as a high priest of the better things that have come and are to come. Then through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not, wait, not made with human hands, that is not a part of this material creation, he went once for all into the holy of holies of heaven. Remember, we're not talking about the earthly one. He entered in, 
And this is again the thing that's so amazing when you stop to think that man's sin actually somehow stained the heavenly utensils of the tabernacle that has its true existence in heaven. Because he, remember when he rose from the dead, he said, do not touch me yet for I've not yet ascended. He had to go and take that blood and the scripture is going to say and cleanse the heavenly. I mean, verse 12, he went once for all into the holy of holies of heaven, not by virtue of the blood of goats and calves by which to make reconciliation between God and man, but his own blood, now listen, but by his own blood, having found and secured a complete redemption and everlasting release for us. Verse 13, for if the mere sprinkling of unholy and defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a burnt heifer is sufficient for the purification of the body, how much more surely, remember when we taught on grace, the much more is in the Bible. You need to see how many times much more is in the Bible and how those Greek words, you have to shout them actually to, to translate them correctly. He said, how much more surely shall the blood of Christ, her, who by virtue of his eternal spirit, his own preexistent divine personality, has offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the ever living God. Verse 15, Christ the Messiah is therefore the negotiator and the mediator of an entirely new agreement, a new testament, a new covenant, so that those who are called and offered it may receive the fulfillment of the promised everlasting inheritance since the death has taken place, which delivers and redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first agreement. Hallelujah. Now, if you turn the page, I'm going to read this thing about just sin consciousness here. This is a statement from E.W. Kenyon's old book. Now, E.W. Kenyon, in this nation, a lot of people said he was a heretic. He was, they, they accused him of heresy because before he got saved, he was into Christian science. And they said that a lot of the things he spoke to, he said, sounded like Christian science. You know, I, I had to laugh because anybody who's ever been saved out of anything still remembers that sometimes there was some truth that people operated in that was, you know, the Bible, Jesus said the children of this world are wiser than the sons of man. But Kenyon was a man that was incredible. I mean, he, his books on righteousness with the name of Jesus, uh, some of the best books you can ever read in your life. I mean, E.W. E. Kenyon, this old man, when you see the picture of him on the back of a book, this smiling old face, E.W. Kenyon, the way he died was enough to make me read his stuff. He when he'd retired, he was sitting in his house and he said, daughter, he said, bring me my favorite breakfast. He said, the Lord's spoken to me. He said, I'm going home today at 1030. And uh, she said, what? And he said, bring me my favorite breakfast. Totally healthy, totally fine. He said, I've run my course. And you can read it. He sat down, had his favorite breakfast, got his Bible, went, sat in a chair, started to read. At 1030, he left. He just went on home. I mean, you know, Hallelujah. This guy walked close to God. But now listen to this. This is a statement. I've got some statements in here from his old books. To sin consciousness can be traced the reason for practically every spiritual failure. It destroys faith. It destroys the initiative in the heart. It gives to man an inferiority complex. 
Sin consciousness causes us to be afraid of God and afraid of ourselves. Sin conscious people are ever searching for someone else to pray the prayer of faith for them. Now think about the pregnancy of those statements. Sin consciousness causes us to be afraid of God and afraid of ourselves. Sin conscious people are ever searching for someone else to pray the prayer of faith for them. They have no sense of their own legal right to stand in the Father's presence without condemnation. Now, let me just say this. I just wrote some of my own notes down here, but I want you to think about this. Is there any human being today alive, no matter how holy he walks before God, that does not still have some sin in his life somewhere? I mean, is there any such thing as a sinless human being today? Is there? No. So, I mean, think about that. Then... Think about what it means to come before God thinking that maybe you qualify because you lived right all last week or you've done all that you knew to do. But what I'm trying to get at, you've got to understand if indeed you being perfect was what qualified you to come before God, no one would ever be used of God ever. Now, see, again, you have to walk so carefully. I'm trying, this is why, because it's not, and again, remember, I have to quote again what, from one of the lessons, remember, in, in the grace teachings, what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you know, as a Calvinist and as a conservative, he said, Romans 6.1 is a proof scripture as to whether or not you're actually preaching the gospel. And for him to say that, like I said before, it was just amazing. He said, if you are indeed preaching the truth, of what God has done in Christ, it will always create the opportunity for that misunderstanding. Is, you mean it's okay to sin? Shall we continue in sin? Paul said, when you teach the truth of what God has done in grace, that's what many people will hear. It's okay to sin. No, God forbid. What this is intended to do is to produce in you, like I said, such a strong attraction, a spiritual attraction to what God has done it breaks the power of sin's attraction. I want to say that over and over again. But I'm just saying you have to get comfortable. Now, don't mishear me. Not complacent. Maybe I should use the word aware. I don't know. You have to be aware that no matter how much I confess and confess and confess and confess, I'm still flesh and blood and there's still things in my life that are crazy. In other words, I never come up to some state of perfection where I live righteous as God is righteous. That is, again, why righteousness has been deposited to our account, not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. But again, you see, we come before God now and we're able to stand before him in his presence without any sense of guilt. This is the whole reason Christ has done what he's done. Without any iota of guilt or condemnation because... He that knew no sin was made to be this sin so that we might be made. We have been made. We have been made the righteousness of God. And what I love about Romans is Paul says we've been declared righteous. I mean, if you said it every day for the rest of your life, it wouldn't be a bad thing. 
It doesn't say you live righteously. Like I said, it doesn't say you are a perfect, you have perfect behavior. Like I keep saying, most people when they teach in holiness are teaching behavior modification. You will never live holy until you know that holiness has been implanted in you. Again, it's this incredible thing that you begin to comprehend that, that man, I'm telling you, it makes all the difference. But you've been declared righteous, vindicated, justified in an eternal courtroom. Hallelujah. In other words, you've been found not guilty. <laughs> Somebody say praise God anyhow. Oh, well. Back to, the, back to this, the second paragraph, Kenyon. Sin consciousness. Just think about the word sin consciousness. Always being aware of where you fall short. Always meditating on what you don't do as good as you could do. Always thinking about what you've done wrong yesterday and what you're the bad thoughts that went through your head this morning, uh, the whatever, just always, 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 always being consumed with the negative. Sin, consciousness. Always being conscious. Always being conscious of where you fall short. Listen, even in the business world, they talk about you have to learn to go to your strengths. If you go to your strengths, your weaknesses diminish as long as you maximize and capitalize on what those strengths are supposed to produce. Anyhow, listen, the second paragraph, sin consciousness is the parent of practically all human religions. Man going about to find some personal self-worth to replace their feeling of emptiness. Many try to quiet their conscience by going to church, doing penance, fasting, giving money, saying prayers, doing good deeds, giving up pleasures, fighting bad habits, etc. Peter speaks to that as will worship. He said, remember, but this, this, listen to this next, these next few paragraphs. This next paragraph, I remember when I read this 20 some years ago, how much it struck me. He said, remember the fearlessness. Remember the fearlessness of Jesus in the presence of the Father. His fearlessness before Satan. Why? He knew he had a legal right in the Father's presence. He knew he was master of Satan and all his forces. Remember how fearless he was in the storm. I mean, see, stop and think on those things. A storm did not, nothing intimidated him. And remember in the light of all of this, as remember, keep throwing in the rest of the stuff that we've been communicating. Philippians, he had stripped himself of his Godhead powers he was not fearless because he was God. He was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost being fearless because he knew where he stood with God. Don't, you got you to keep that in line. Remember how fearless he was in the storm and what an absolute ruler he was over the laws of nature. He was not afraid to say to dead Lazarus, even in the presence of a large number of people, Lazarus come forth. He had no sense of inferiority in the presence of death. He had no sense of inferiority in the presence of disease. He was not afraid to speak to the maimed and command them to be whole. Righteousness is a masterful thing. Has God restored this manner of righteousness to his people? This is what you get to meditate on until your meditator breaks. Did you buy another meditator and you wear it out? And you buy another one and you wear it out? 
This is a life journey where you meditate on these things. I'll tell you what, what you think, you know, as a man thinketh, so is he. You know the verses. What you give your thoughts to consistently, you begin to form and shape your life into. It didn't come from psychology. It came from scripture first. But righteousness, a revelation of knowing that I'm right with God, not based upon my behavior, based upon Christ's behavior and my faith in him is what begins to deliver me. And I mean, there's so many things like I was sharing with Julie before I started, you know, when I wrote this curriculum, uh, sorry for all the typos are in it, by the way, this, the buck stops here. It's not my fault, but it's my fault because I'm the head, you know. But I had to, you know, I've got, I've got 18 hours in this and I had to keep thinking to myself what to discard, what do I set aside? But think about the simple verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 38, awake unto righteousness and sin not. I mean, there's so much proof of what happens when people get a revelation of the fact I'm right with God. When you look yourself in the mirror, I mean, when you awake unto righteousness, it breaks the power of sinning and sin no longer has dominion over you. Now, back in Hebrews verse, chapter 9, let's look at verse 21 through 24. It says, and in the same way, Jesus sprinkled with his blood both the tabernacle and all the sacred vessels and appliances used in divine worship. In fact, under the law, almost, I know we've read them before, but we're reading them again. In fact, under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the due and merited punishment for sins. By such means, therefore, it was necessary for the earthly copies of the heavenly things to be purified. Listen. But the actual heavenly things themselves required far better and nobler sacrifices than these. Now let's read to the end of the chapter. For Christ the Messiah has not entered into a sanctuary made with human hands, only a copy and a pattern and a type of the true one, but he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. Nor did he enter into the heavenly sanctuary to offer himself regularly again and again as the high priest enters the Holy of Holies every year with blood not his own. Verse 26, for then would he often have had to suffer. Bleed again and again and again. For then would he often have had to suffer over and over again since the foundation of the world. Now listen to these next few verses. <laughs> but as it now is, he has once and for all, at the consummation and close of the ages, appeared, appeared to put away and abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for all men once to die. Can I just throw this in? I get so tired of hearing people say, well, it must have been their time to die because the Bible says, you know, it's appointed unto every man the time to die. No, it doesn't say the time, a time. Does it? It says once <laughs> to die. God hasn't pre-appointed a time for you to die. He said, with long life will I satisfy you and show you my salvation. Hallelujah. Quit believing those curses. Anyhow, for just, just as it is appointed for all men once to die, and after that, the certain judgment, even so, verse 28, even so it is that Christ, having been offered to take upon himself and bear as a burden 
the sins of many once, now really listen to this last verse. You got to really listen. Even so it is that Christ, having been offered to take upon himself and bear as a burden the sins of many once and once for all, he will appear a second time. But now listen, he will appear a second time, but not to carry any burden of sin, nor to deal with sin. <laughs> but to bring to full salvation those who are eagerly, constantly, and patiently waiting for and expecting him. Now just, again, use your head and your noggin just for a moment. Why isn't he going to deal with sin when he appears the next time? He's already dealt with it. He's already dealt with it. Hear, the, hear me. As far as heaven is concerned, the price for sin has been paid. Any sacrifice that was ever necessary has already been dealt with. Jesus is coming again, but not to deal with sin. Now, he's seated right now, finished work. He's seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. We are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. We empower things that we believe. I say that over and over and over to you. That's what 1 Thessalonians teaches. You can believe a lie and be damned for it. Who have pleasure in unrighteousness as opposed to righteousness. What you believe, you empower, you give validation to, you actually attract. And then you begin to make denominations out of it and say, well, this is the way it works because this is what I believe and this is how it happens. No. And again, you have to interpret it in the rest of the scripture. Like I said, when you study the four gospels, I'll share this next month when we get into faith stuff and what have you. But Jesus Christ always met people where they believed. It wasn't any other way. What you believe is where heaven is. What you believe is what heaven has to work with. But this is why in God's love, it's a great thing because he'll meet you wherever you're at. But people who believe wrong things are bound to the environment of their belief system. That's why it says over and over again, it's when we've got to get this hunk of meat between our ears metamorphosized, metamorpho, renewed. That your minds might be renewed. Now jump to chapter 10 again real quick. Let's read from verse 12. I'm going to read from verse 11. Furthermore, every human priest stands at his altar of service, ministering daily, offering the same sacrifices over and over again, which never are able to strip from every side of us the sins that envelop us and take them away. Verse 12, whereas this one Christ, after he had offered a single sacrifice for our sins, that shall avail for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemy should be made a stool beneath his feet. Right? Right? Now remember in the midst of that, he is the head, you are the body. Are the feet attached to the head or the body? The feet are attached to the body. He's waiting <laughs> for his enemies to be made his footstool. Verse 14, now listen to it. For by a single offering, what are you going to do with this verse? He has forever, say forever. For by a single offering, he has forever completely cleansed, forever completely cleansed and perfected those who are consecrated and made holy. Well, is that futuristic or is that now? What, what's it? You've been made holy. You have. Not your body. 
not your head, your spirit, the real you, has been made holy. And also the Holy Spirit adds his testimony to us in confirmation of this for having said, verse 16, this is the agreement, the testament, the covenant that I will set up and conclude with them after those days, says the Lord. I will imprint my laws upon their hearts. I will inscribe them on their minds, on their inmost thoughts and understanding. He then goes on to say, and their sins and their law breaking, I will remember no more. Verse 18, now where there is absolute remission, absolute remission, forgiveness and cancellation of the penalty of these sins and law breakings, there is no longer any offering made to atone for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have full freedom and confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by the power and virtue and the blood of Jesus, by this fresh, new, and living way which he initiated and dedicated and opened for us through the separating curtain, the veil of the Holy Holies, that is, through his flesh, and since we have such a great and wonderful and noble priest who rules over the house of God, let us all come forward and draw near with true, honest, sincere hearts in unqualified assurance and absolute conviction engendered by faith, by that leaning of the entire human personality on God and absolute trust and confidence in his power, having had our hearts sprinkled and purified from a guilty, evil conscience and our bodies cleansed with pure water, and I have to stop. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.